0: Imagine if marriage didn't exist, and you're a guy, and you ask a woman to get married. Imagine what that conversation would be like. You'd be like, uh, hey, so, um, you know, we've been hanging out together all the time, spending a lot of time together and everything? Yeah, yeah, I know. I want to keep doing that till you're dead. <laughs> what? I want to keep hanging out with you till one of us dies. Put this ring on your finger so people know we have an arrangement. What? What? Who's that guy? It's a priest. I want you to swear to God you won't back out of this deal. That is purely the role I try to play at every wedding, just making sure people don't back out of that deal. Um, We certainly do have interesting wedding traditions, I think, um, like, uh, for example, eating the cake. Uh, A lot of brides and grooms will serve each other cake uh, from their wedding cake at some point during the reception evening. Uh, I think it's kind of interesting uh, for an interesting story for Stephanie and I. Um, When we got married. Uh, We did that. But it's not like you practice that um, and you really don't even remember it until somebody tells you, oh, you got to go do this. And so Stephanie and I um, thought that you do it with forks. Um, But what I have since learned is most brides and grooms do it with their hands. And there's a really good reason for that because when Stephanie went to feed me the piece of cake, um, she uh, accidentally, I think it was accidentally, impaled me with uh, the fork in my bottom lip. And of course you have all these guests there. And so what are you gonna do, you know, cry? Uh, No, of course you turn to everybody, smile and say, well, this is fun, isn't it? And you really wonder, why are we doing this? Um, But today um, in this series, as we wrap it up today, called uh, Do It Yourself DIY, we're going to be talking about and continue the conversation about how some of these important parts of our lives, like marriage, can feel like a project, but that it doesn't have to be one of those projects where you feel overwhelmed, ill-equipped, that you can go into these projects uh, feeling well-prepared and ready to take on the challenges that come with life. Because, and the truth really is, marriage is a project. Now, hopefully, it is a project... um, As most projects are, uh, they're projects that you prepare for. For example, if you're just going to do a do-it-yourself project, which is usually associated with a a construction project or a fixing project around the house, um, hopefully you have come prepared to do that, right? You've planned a little bit. You've gotten the right equipment and the materials to be able to accomplish your project. But I don't know how your do-it-yourself projects go, but mine usually come with a series of unexpected issues. And what's even worse is when you don't have the tool that you need to complete that project, right? Have you ever tried to fix something with the wrong tool? It's not very much fun. Or a simple example is just trying to put together Ikea furniture with the one literal tool that they give you, that Allen wrench, and it's quite cumbersome, especially if it's a large project. And so instead of getting caught out with without those tools, um, today, especially with the topic, of marriage. I want to hopefully give you some great resources to take away from today and hopefully get to know better a God who loves you, who cares for you, and is willing to guide you and equip you through the challenges of life, especially those that happen in those key areas um, such as uh, relationships and marriage. Now, um, there is certainly going to be a number of marriage takeaways for today, but for those of you uh, who are not in the marriage um, category of life, there is still going to to be a lot for you because these lessons, these principles apply to really all relationships. It's kind of like when we were in the dating uh, topic uh, in week three of this series, we talked about dating, same thing was applicable really to all relationships. However, today the stakes are a little higher because usually with marriage, um, the, the stakes are raised a bit because you've made promises, that you hope to keep, and that you have built relationships and and families have come together. They've connected in ways that are not easily uh, broken. And there are kids involved, which is something we really should be taking serious. So the commitment is more. And so we're going to take at least a Sunday here to talk about that. Now, I want to begin by introducing you... um to a researcher uh, out in Seattle, whose name is Dr. John Gottman. And some of you may be familiar with uh, him. I wasn't until really I got into ministry. Uh, and he is a really well, well, well known um, uh, doctor uh, on the topic of psychology and specifically the topic of marriage. And he has done extensive research out at the University of Washington on marriage. And he has essentially set up a lab. And by lab, it's actually an apartment where then he has married couples come and live there for a period of time. And then all day long, every day that those married couples are in that um, apartment, they are being uh, recorded and studied by Gottman and his team. And he has done this for decades And though for some of us that might feel a little intrusive, for um, the research that's being done, it's a tremendous insight because it's, you know this, let's be honest, When we leave the home, when we get ourselves around other people, we put on uh, a better version of ourselves than maybe what happens in our home when we don't think people are looking. Well, if you live in a place long enough, even if you know people are watching, those bad parts of ourselves come out regardless. And so he took the scientific method and applied it to these relationships to try to predict what were the reasons marriages failed, And he got so good at that, that he claims to, with a 90% plus accuracy rate, be able to determine whether or not a marriage will survive or fail. Now, wouldn't that be a bit of a game changer? If somebody could predict marriage success or failure, don't you think that would change things, change things for you, change things for our world, change things for families in general, that things should and would look different if we had that knowledge? Well, we do. In fact, it's common knowledge. The problem is most of us don't know that. And I think part of the reason we don't know that has to do with what we talked about in week one of this entire series, it's priorities. I mean, how much time have you spent maybe researching or planning a vacation? Maybe planning and figuring out what was the next show you were going to binge on Netflix or Hulu? How much time have you spent trying to figure out a purchase that you were going to make in the last month or so? And then take that time and compare it to how much time you've actually spent investing in and learning about relationships, specifically marriage, your marriage. I think it kind of gives you a little bit of an idea of what you care about most. Have you taken the same amount of time perhaps to even learn about the God who created you and, and that relationship called marriage that he helped create? In week three, we also talked about how our tendency, and I think this is part of the reason we don't know this research and, and we haven't learned it from anybody until maybe even today, is like in week three, we, we go under the assumption that in, if all we need to do is just find the right person, if we find the right person, everything will work out but that instead of trying to spend all the time trying to find the right person, instead we should spend that time becoming the person worth finding. That's what we talked about. But I think that keeps us from maybe the opportunities we have to have better relationships. And so today is an opportunity for growth for you as it is for me to avoid these landmines, these problems that they either will just explode and and blow up a relationship, or they will just slowly chip away at a relationship until it is no more. And so the four things that Gottman discovered are the primary indicators of a relationship failure is what's called the four horsemen of the apocalypse, four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, Gottman uses this imagery, of the horsemen of the apocalypse, uh, he takes it from uh, the book of Revelation, which is the last book in the, the Christian Bible. And um, he uses this imagery to essentially get our attention that if we don't give our attention to these four horsemen, they will slowly bring or immediately bring apocalypse to our marriages or our relationships. So now that he has our attention with this bit of drama, let's talk about those four things. The first horseman is criticism, criticism. Now, I don't want you all at home to freak out because I realize for some of you, you're thinking, well, there is a healthy dose of criticism in my relationship. So is that mean we're over? Not necessarily. With criticism, it's the, the one horseman where there's not an entirely direct one-to-one correlation to marriage failure, The issue with criticism is what it leads into. But before we get there, I want to talk about what criticism, the kind of criticism that we're talking about specifically, because I think there's a pretty broad definition and perception of what criticism is. The criticism that he's talking about, that we're talking about today, is personal. It's the kind of criticism that attacks a person for who they are. It attacks their character. And in so doing, it hurts the other person. Inflicts emotional pain on them, questions their value, quest- values questions their value as an individual, and this not and this is not just exclusive to marriages. This happens all the time. I mean, like just show a hands, even if you're watching from home. How many of you have ever been in a relationship with a, uh, you know, a friend or a coworker or heavens, your in-laws? Okay, where there was some criticism involved. Okay. Yeah, nobody's raising their hand in this room, so they're all perfect. But maybe you at, your, at, <laughs> at home, you have, have done that. You know, nobody's looking, so you can raise your hand. Okay? Yeah, that there has been some criticism in those relationships. Okay? So I want to read to you, so you have a clear idea of what criticism is. I want you to hear an example of criticism. Criticism sounds like this. You never think about how your behavior is affecting other people. I don't believe you are that forgetful. You're just selfish. You never think of others. You never think of me. That's criticism. Now, the opposite of that or an alternative to voice your concerns, because I realized for some of us, it's like, well, okay, if I can't criticize, how do I bring up a problem? Gottman suggests the alternative, which is a complaint. And here's an example that he gives. This is that same issue, but stated in a complaint format, not a criticism, not personal. Here's how that sounds. I was scared when you were running late and didn't call me. I thought we had agreed we would call each other if we were running late. Sounds a lot different, doesn't it? it. But the problem is still the same. The problem is there was no communication. and Someone was late. Now I want to read these two back to back together. And I want you to listen. This is a little bit of a tip. Listen to who the focus is. And I will try to make it pretty clear as I read this. Who is the focus when this issue comes about? Criticism. You never think about your behavior and how it is affecting other people. I don't believe you are that forgetful. You're just selfish. You never think of others. You never think of me. Pretty clear who the focus is. It's the other person. It's personal. The complaint. I was scared when you were running late and didn't call me. I thought we had agreed that we would call each other if we were running late. What's the focus? The focus is on my concern and our relationship. It's different and it feels different, doesn't it? Criticism is present in most relationships, but it doesn't have to be. But the problem is that when it is, as some of you have experienced probably more than once, how criticism leads to other things. And we want to, I'm going to talk about those other things, the remaining three horsemen. But before I do, I just want to highlight criticism doesn't have to be face-to-face. Criticism, even behind the back of someone else, can still compromise the relationship. If, if you are a Jesus follower and you've been listening to us for a while, you know, because we talk about this every so often, how Jesus was so concerned with people's hearts, the state of our heart. The reality is, even if we criticize someone behind their back, maybe to other people, or maybe just internally, it changes our hearts. It impacts and affects our hearts. Our thoughts, even our thoughts, can hurt us and change our posture and approach to someone else. Face-to-face or behind the back, it doesn't matter. Criticism will lead to the next three. The first, or the second... And what lead, criticism leads to is contempt. Contempt is when things turn truly mean, when it becomes disrespectful, when you mock people, sarcasm, ridicule, call them names, mimic, use body language like eye rolling and scoffing. The target, it, the target of your contempt is made to feel despised and worthless. Here's an example of what contempt sounds like. You're tired, cry me a river. I've been with the kids all day, running around like mad to keep this house going. And all you do when you come home is work, flop down on the sofa like a child and play those video games. I don't have time to deal with another kid. Could you be any more pathetic? It's criticism, but it's moved into a whole new level of name calling and discounting the other person. And I know for some of you, you might be like, that's a little extreme. You've not maybe experienced that, but I just want to ask you this question, as you concluded that heated moment, that tense moment, did the other person in that tense moment feel worth more or worth less by the end? Did the other person at heated exchange feel worth more or worth less? Probably worth less. Now, how about you? How, how did you feel after that heated exchange? How did you maybe the one dealing out the criticism and the contempt? How did you feel at the end of the exchange? Worth more or worth less? My guess is you might have felt just a bit worth more, because that's the implication of contempt. To be contemptu- contemptuous of another person means you have to assume a position of a superiority, of moral superiority over the other person. And I realize for some of you, you're like, hey, Pastor Taylor, if you knew the story, if you knew what they did, you know, like you would understand why I got to the point of contentment. You would understand why I, I, in some ways, may have played a part in destroying the relationship. I understand that there are a whole wide range of stories and reasons for our actions. But I want you to be aware that this right here And Gottman clearly lays this out is the greatest predictor of relationship and marriage failure contempt because it begins to erode at even the core value of you and the other person in the relationship. Number three, defensiveness. Here's what defensiveness sounds like question. Did you call Betty and Ralph to let them know we're not coming tonight? As you promised this morning, defensive response. I was just too darn busy today. As a matter of fact, you know just how busy my schedule was. Why didn't you just do it? Defensiveness, in defensiveness, we fish for excuses. We play the innocent card. We play the victim card so our, our partner will back off. But in so doing, our spouse and our defensiveness, what our spouse hears is, I don't take your concerns seriously. What your spouse hears is, is I'm not going to take responsibility that posture of indifference of brushing things under the rug or putting the burden on the other person can break a relationship. It doesn't resolve anything. It doesn't heal anything. In fact, defensiveness only escalates things and either eventually or maybe instead of defensiveness, there's the last horseman, which is stonewalling. This is different than we need to take a time out, honey. Let's come back in a half hour, revisit this. Let's just give us some time to breathe, okay? That's different. That's intentional, stepping back and letting things cool off. That's healthy. This is withdrawing from an interaction. This is shutting down. This is ignoring. This is simply putting a stop to the responding or the interaction between two people. I know you know this, but it is really difficult to be in a relationship when someone is in a castle and you're on the outside of it and you can't get in. How do you have a relationship that way? You can't. So what do we do? What do we do with all of these horsemen? Well, in the book, seven principles for making uh, marriage work, Gottman offers some antidotes, and I don't think they're bad. I just would suggest to you that they're a bit incomplete, that they're missing some tools that we need to have in our tool bucket for even a more successful do-it-yourself project, such as marriage or such as a a relationship that we really care about. The things that that I think Gottman is missing is, one, the part that Jesus brings to the table. The difference that he makes. And if you're not Christian, just bear with me here, because I really do think the Jesus component makes a significant difference. And to lay that out, Paul, who was a Christian hater, who met the resurrected Jesus, then became a Christian, started a bunch of churches, wrote nearly half of our uh, New Testament part of the Bible, and eventually gave his life for Jesus, outlines the solution. In a letter that he wrote to a church, much like infused church, um, called Colossians. And he wrote to the people who met in this church, in this city. And he said to them this in chapter 3, verse 12. He said, as an attention getter, he said, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. In other words, Christians, this is for you. This is not optional if you're Christian. Now, if you're not Christian, This is optional. However, I would suggest to you that this and what he's about to say is better than Gottman because, well, for one, it came 2,000 years before this research came about and because it involves Jesus in a way that will make a difference to you if you explore it, if you learn about it, and you grow to understand the implication of Jesus in your life. Now, hear me out as we go through the next few verses. He says, Christian, clothe yourself with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness, and patience. In other words, he is kind of mirroring what he said to his letter to the church in Corinth, which we talked about in week three on dating, often called the love verses that's read at weddings, right? Love is patient, love is kind, that kind of thing. He's mirroring this in his letter to the the church in Colossians. um, And he mirrors that because how we love, or in other words, what we wear matters because what we wear, people will see that, don't they? Like what we wear, people see. In fact, it's one of the first things people see when they see us. And isn't it true that you see criticism coming? If someone is wearing, let's say a coat of criticism, you know, it's going to happen. You can see it on their face. You can see it in their eyes. You can read the room enough to understand what's about to happen. You see defensiveness as it's happening, don't you? And you see stonewalling. It's pretty obvious because you don't see a whole lot. So he uses this imagery of wearing something. And he says, I want you to physically imagine putting on a coat of compassion, a shirt of gentleness. Imagine what that would look like if you got up in the morning and you just, and I know it sounds kind of silly, but that you just put that over yourself. Especially before you walk into a tense situation, especially as you walk into what you know could turn into be a critical conversation with a, a critical kind of a person or a person that's easily shut down, that's overwhelmed and begins stonewalling. You know you're going into that situation, and you put on patience that you wear into that conversation, kindness that so much so that they can see the gentleness you're bringing to the table. Do you think that would make a difference in how the rest of the conversation goes? Do you think that maybe would have made a difference to you and your family and your parents, your friends, especially those whose marriage marriages ended, it would have made a difference? Do you think it'd make a difference with your spouse today? Do you think it'd make a difference with your previous spouse? It's really simple. Who would you want to be around? Would you want to be around someone wearing compassion or someone wearing criticism or contempt? Pretty easy answer, isn't it? And then he goes on to build on these wearing adjectives, these descriptions of essentially love. He says to put those on begins to reset the tone that in ideally in a few hours of of wearing gentleness, ideally in a few weeks or maybe even a few months, depending on the length of time, these four horsemen have been present in your relationships that eventually you're going to get to a point that you have now set the stage in a few hours or a few minutes or a few months where now something amazing is about to happen. Here's what he says, bear with each other and forgive one another if any Of you has a grievance against someone. If any of you have any kind of grievance, bear with them, and your goal should be to forgive them. If you close yourself in gentleness, don't you think saying "Hey, I'm sorry" would be easier? Hey, I forgive you would be easier. It's pretty difficult to to um, to uh, forgive a critical person, isn't it? To forgive a defensive person, a contemptuous person versus to clothe yourself in kindness. See, clothing yourself in these adjectives sets the stage for at least what we call in church world and Christianity repentance. And some of us have a bad taste in our mouth when we hear the word repent, because it's sometimes yelled at us, you know, repent, 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 repent. Okay. Repentance means to change Paths. In its original language in ancient Greek, it means to change path, that you're going to completely change and begin a new direction. Do you want to change for someone who cares and communicates kindness, or do you want to change for someone who's critical? You want to change for that person who's compassionate, don't you? It sets the stage for repentance to say, I'm sorry. I messed up. I was wrong. And for then you to be able to respond with forgiveness or vice versa for, for um, you to apologize. And the other person who then brings their coat of compassion to the table for them, their com- coat of, of grace and truth to the table to forgive you, to begin the process of reconciliation, healing, and understanding. You want to know how many people have ever approached me and said, Hey, Taylor, we got, we got uh, relationship problems. Can you help us? Um, I think we just need to learn to be better at forgiveness. How many people do you think have ever said that to me? Zero. I think for a lot of reasons that is the case, but I think one of the biggest ones is we just don't know how we don't know how especially because we tend to let all the grievances build up, grievances build up for years and years and years and years and becomes a real problem. But the good news is God does know how to forgive. In fact, God is in the business of forgiveness. In fact, God has modeled it perfectly and not just modeled any kind of forgiveness. He's modeled a very specific kind of forgiveness. And Paul leverages that. He says, you need to forgive, but you need to forgive as the Lord Jesus has forgiven you. As Jesus forgave you, that's how you need to forgive. You need to look to Jesus as your model. You need to look to learn from the forgiveness of God, your father, through Jesus as your model. Because isn't it true that it is easier to do something that you have already experienced? It's easier to endeavor into a project and accomplish something that you have already experienced at least once in your life. Yes, of course it is. Um, when I was uh, started my internship out in Seattle a um, number of years ago, I had a roommate there and he had never done uh, dishes before, never washed dishes in the dishwasher before. Uh, and you kind of think, well, maybe by the age of 18, 1920, actually, no, it was 20s, early 20s. You should probably know how to do that, but he didn't. And so one day he said, I'll do the dishes. And then we left to go see a baseball game. And I was talking to him about it at the baseball game. You know, how, how'd the dishes go? And he said, good. I, I put the Don into the dishwasher and started it. And instantly I knew when we got back to the apartment, there would be soap and water and suds everywhere. And truly there was, and it had gone down to the apartment below. Um, but he had never experienced it before. And I bet you that was the last time he ever made that mistake. And so I think we have to take that same approach that we don't just know that God is a forgiving God, but that we get to experience the forgiveness of God to know and experience that God knows all of your sin, all of those moments and times internally and externally where you have missed the mark with God and the people God has created your neighbor's. That you have been angry unjustifiably, that you have been bitter when you shouldn't have been, that you are ashamed deep down. You're feeling guilty and you have buried it. I mean, some people are amazing. You do a great job at burying it deep down, deep down, but it is still there. And God knows that sin. And God, clothed in forgiveness, clothed in grace and love, is waiting right there present with you for you to ask for forgiveness because he cares about you and he will forgive you. And when you experience that kind of forgiveness to be forgiven by God, the creator of the universe, God, the creator of you and your world and this universe, that God, it changes things, doesn't it? Once you have experienced something, you tend to share it, right? Right? You tend to share that good news, that that new news, that thing that you have learned with other people, haven't you? Because you know it. You know it so well because it's changed you and you want other people to be changed too. That's the kind of forgiveness I'm talking about. To forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. My friends, there are no loopholes. There are no loopholes in this kind of forgiveness. Forgiveness. We'll look for loopholes. We'll try to get out of forgiving the other person. We'll say, you know what? He deserved that. She deserved that. I was young. He was young. She was mean, contemptuous. I mean, it was just painful, Taylor. Like it was just awful. It's built up for months, built up for years. And you know what? I don't feel like they deserve forgiveness. Listen, if they've been mean to you, you as God's son, you as God's daughter, because that's how God refers to us is as his children. We are sons and daughters of God. Then he has also, she has also, they have also been mean to God. And guess what? That same God has still forgiven them if they want to accept it. It is super tempting to withhold forgiveness from others, but you, all your sin known by God have been forgiven. So don't you think it's a little hypocritical to ask for forgiveness and not give it out to others? Peace will always elude you. Peace will always be out of reach for you without forgiveness. The scars of the horsemen will continue to be there without forgiveness. You can start to change the dynamics in your relationship. You can start to take on some of the antidotes that Gottman suggests in his book, which are great things and honestly, just really mirror what Paul says right here. And Paul said 2000 years ago, and Jesus said 2000 years ago before him, but ultimately they'll still be there. The scars will still be there until you get to the point of not forgetting, but forgiveness. Now, I realize from a practical sense, a great first step is to just be aware of the four horsemen. Practically, just being able to name these for what they are, just being aware of when they pop up in your relationships, in your marriage, is a powerful step in trying to address them, in starting a new direction, just knowing them. But it is hard to move past them completely when they've become so personal. When there has been true meanness, hurtfulness, anger, and bitterness built up in a relationship. When the habit is to go defensive or to stonewall instead of to reconcile. And to move you through that will require. Forgiveness. And to set the stage for that forgiveness, you're going to have to really experience from God, the Father, creator of the universe, his kind of love, that, that compassion, that gentleness, that kindness, and then share that. Wear that. Take it with you. And so, the question I want to leave you with today to begin the conversation, to maybe begin a new direction in your life, is this question right here What are you wearing? If you're watching online, seriously, what are you wearing? I know it's kind of funny, but I want you to remember it. I want you to kind of stick with you. In fact, I want in those critical moments, in those tense moments, in those relationships, I want you to kind of inwardly smirk a little bit as you think about, well, what am I wearing? Maybe not say it out loud, but you know, think about it. Because in that middle of that escalating situation, because that's what the horsemen do, they always escalate, escalate, escalate. You can enter in a little humor and a little fun, a little joy. But ultimately, in the face of criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling, you can ask yourself, what am I wearing? Because criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling, I'll just be honest with you, they don't look good on you. They never have looked good on you you need to take those back for a full refund and look at your father in heaven and ask your father in heaven to learn from him. Learn from the best. Learn from the creator of kindness, gratitude, curiosity, hope, joy, peace, and forgiveness. And that song that kind of led into today's service, um, uh, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound It just sounds good and it feels good to wear that kind of love. This is not just a solution, though it can be, and it is, but it is also a preventative. It can save your marriage before it starts, as well as repair what's been broken. It will take a little work, but most do it yourself projects do. If you would bow your heads, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, please help us to do some inward, deep inward reflection. Lord, to acknowledge that we ourselves have brought the four horsemen into relationships when they did not need to be there. When ourselves have have brought sin and failure into relationships. Our relationship with you and our relationship with others. Help us to acknowledge and accept our shortcomings, not so that we can feel ashamed, but that we can, so that we can feel humbled and moved to reach out to the forgiveness that you offer and that you have modeled for us through your son that we would not just be okay with where we are, that we would want to prioritize and lean into becoming more, to be transformed by your love, Lord, into a new creation, Lord, that you would work in our hearts. We would experience the forgiveness that you have waiting for us so that we can bring that kind of love, that kind of grace, that kind of kindness and commitment and and forgiveness to the relationships, especially those we care about most. We can bring that to the marriages that we have, the marriages of those people in, that we're watching today, who may be on the rocks, who may have been struggling for years. Bring that into those relationships, so that going forward, they are relationships that resemble you more than anything else. That that people in those tense and critical moments walk into those. Tr- tense and critical moments, clothed in your love. And that those people around would see that. They'd be moved by it. And it would open the door for reconciliation and healing and growth. Lord, this is tough stuff. Help us not to shy away. Help us to make it priority. Make it important. And if we still have exploring to do to determine who you are and what you have in store for us, help us not shy away from that. And if we need reminded, help us to be reminded as as your dearly loved, as Paul talks about, that this is who we're supposed to be. This is what we're supposed to bring to the table. Help us to have those difficult conversations today or tomorrow with our spouse about the presence of these apocalyptic qualities in our relationships and help us to navigate that as we move forward. Thank you for your love. Give us the guidance we need in the days to come. In your name I pray. Amen.